What up, everybody? This is Tyler. This is Danny. And we're here for another episode of Fried Squirms. We're here to get stoned and talk about horror movies. Like we do every week. <laughs> like we do every day. <laughs> every we day just don't record it all the time. That's true. That's very true. This week, if you paid attention to the title and didn't just let this autoplay from something else, is The Fly. The Cronenberg Fly. Not to be confused with The Other Fly. <laughs> Or the short story. Yeah, there's several adaptations. But before we get to all that and talking about the story, we got to do the more important part, which is we got to get stoned first. So let's get to our green heads. So Danny, what is this marijuana that you handed me here today? All right, so that marijuana stick I brought you over there today is from our friendly folks over at Flower. And with that being said, it's a strain we've brought over several times. It's... Arguably one of our favorite strains on the show. It is Sour Diesel, otherwise known as Sour D or Sour D's. So this one is Sour a... Nuts. Yeah, it is a sativa-dominant hybrid strain coming in at 90% sativa, 10% indica. The origins on this said sometimes it can be a cross between a mass super skunk and 91 chem dog, while others claim it might be a cross between some kind of Mexican sativa and a chem dog phenotype, either way, you can look forward to a high like no other, right? So this one is more for a cerebral high. It's invigorating. It is an energizing kind of high with that as well. The flavors on this are going to be citrus notes, some candy, dank diesel, and sweet notes, of course. Aromas are about the same over at Flower. Theirs is clocking in somewhere around... 22 odd percent and the terpenes on this which are really nice i like that a little bit more is this one actually they got it on the packet which makes it convenient the total terpenes are a little under uh one and a half percent the most prevalent ones in this strain are the myrcene limonene pinene and linalool so some very chill and nice terpenes in this one. Hell yeah i love some sour d yeah Let's see. I didn't go to Flower this week. I actually switched it up. I didn't go where I wanted to go, Mm -hmm. which is I wanted to go back to Greener, but I also wanted a new cart, and they were out of carts. In fact, I was mostly going for Mm -hmm. a cart. The J's were just secondary. So I ended up top shelf, and today I brought you a little bit ice cream cake. Mm. Love ice cream cake. Going to be a little bit more on the indica side is a cross of wedding cake and gelato, which I know we've brought gelato on Mm -hmm. quite a few times. Which makes sense. They like that over at uh, Greener. Mm -hmm. But this is top shelf, so that's kind of neat. That's cool. Going to be a little bit more relaxing, a little bit more sleepier. Hopefully not tonight. Nah, I'll, I'll fight through it. Dominant terpenes. It's mostly karyophylline followed by limonene and linalool. Nice. Named ice cream cake because supposedly it's a little bit more vanilla-y, doughy, mm. as far as the flavor profile comes that. through. I don't know. I had a JF it the other night. I really liked it. Hope you end up enjoying it. Man, uh, this yeah. one is coming through at 25% THC. Nice. That's pretty nice. Packs a little punch. I was going to say, it unlocked a core memory. Who doesn't like ice cream cake for their birthday? For, for sure, any right? day, Right. Fuck it. I'm an adult. Mm-hmm. I can have it whenever I want. Now I kind of want some ice cream cake right now. Dude, yeah. Ice cream cake, birthday cake, birthday ice cream cake. It sounds all good. 
However, in joint form. Fuck yeah. yeah. <laughs> I might not be near as hungry once we get done talking about this movie, though. No, no. <laughs> um, just like to remind everybody, hit up the Patreon, patreon.com slash fried squirms. At the lowest level of a dollar a month, you could have been listening to this last week. That's right. Patrons get every episode a week early. You pop up to that $3 level, you start oh. getting our exclusive episodes, especially as we've been looking back on everything that we've done up to the, this point. Slowly but surely, we're making our way through. Coming up next. Man, found. Oof. Dude, that's got to be so much fun. All of these films have been fun. Just another one in that long line Mm -hmm. of fun films. And then up at the top level, you got access to anything else experimental we ever decide to do. Plus, you can get in on that Discord. You could be talking to us right now. I'll let you, boys. We'd let you know when we're recording. That's right. Anyway, patreon.com slash fried squirms. Hit that up. We'd appreciate it. Make it pop. But now, I think it's time for us to get into the guts and bolts of The Fly. Guts and bolts. All right, guts and bolts for The Fly. Who and what went into the making of this film? Spoiler-free. Start off with our spoiler-free setup. If you don't know what The Fly is about, this film is about... I mean, so The Fly's in the title, right? Like... Yeah. Like, spoiler-free... Like, what counts as a spoiler for this movie? Because I kind of feel like everyone knows what this movie's about by this point, right? Well, let's... Let's let's pretend like we don't. (laughs) as a scientist, conducts an experiment. And you could say that a fly gets in the ointment. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Things come to pass, because a fly ends up where it shouldn't be. Yeah. Like, flies in the title. I'm not going to avoid saying fly. Fly, yeah, fly, so. fly, 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 fly. Exactly. Which should also be a trigger warning for those who don't <laughs> like flies. So, Cronenbergian shit ensues. Wow. Yeah. And for those who do know, you'll know exactly what we're talking about by that. And, of course, speaking of Cronenberg, we do like talking about the cast and crew. Our director, he also has a writing credit on this as well. And let's see here. Okay, yeah, so with uh, David Cronenberg, we talked about him several different times. We've talked about him once because of uh, his directing... Well, actually, yeah, once because of his directing credit for Scanners, back on episode 55. Twice because of his acting credits. (laughs) Uh, Nightbreed. For episode 77. Acting Cronenberg... Oh, oh, um, Jason X. Yes, episode 65. And along with those films... Jason X was that long ago? It was. I can't believe that either, looking at Are you that. fucking kidding me? I wish I were. That's one of the ones I remember like it was yesterday. <laughs> I, I know. That's, we've been doing this for a bit. <laughs> so, for a few other film credits, as far as directorial credits, I'm going to go back in 1975, where he directed Shivers, followed by 1977's Rabid. He also directed 1979's The Brood. Here's a little film no one really talks about. It's a film called Fast Company. It's a film about pretty much just like drag racing, Mm. right? It is set, I'm putting air quotes out there, in Montana, even though it was filmed in Edmonton. Okay. Right? And for those, it's a little trivia. Where in Montana, did they say? It said Big Sky, so. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a Big Sky in Montana. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. But. I was going to say, for those who don't know this, a little bit of trivia is David Cronenberg does have a love and fascination with cars. So there's that. Hence why he directed that. Okay, so followed up, we've got Videodrome. He did 
The Dead Zone. He also helped on Dead Ringers. I mean, this is his films. Naked Lunch from 91, which is really cool. Film Crash, Existence, A History of Violence, Eastern Promises, Cosmopolis, In Crimes of the Future. He's got several acting roles as well. His son, Brandon, is currently directing as well. Check out some of his works. More recently, I did watch Possessor. Good film. I really want to see that. It's I've good. heard some some fun things about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can definitely tell his father influenced him. But that's a good thing. It's not a, It's not like he's biting off of him. Okay, I did mention that David Cronenberg is one of the script uh, writers on this. Now, the story was written by a gentleman named George... I'm not sure if I'm saying this right or not. I don't know if it's Langellan or Langalan. I'm not sure. But the other gentleman, and then this is uh, something really interesting. This gentleman is Charles Edward Pogue. He helped write such things as The Hound of the Baskervilles, Psycho Part 3, DOA, Dragonheart, and Krull the Conqueror. But the reason he gets a writing credit is because he was the first treatment for the screenplay. Right. And we'll talk about that in the next mm-hmm. section. So that's why he got writing credit. David Cronenberg had a big hand in why he got that credit. Okay. So moving forward, we have cinematographer. That's really interesting considering Cronenberg basically rewrote the I'll mention script. it. I'll mention it. It's really cool. Hmm. Okay. All right. All right. So cinematographer Mark Irwin, gentleman we've talked about a couple of different times before, way back on episode 19, he is the DP for Scream. Wes Craven's Scream. Oh, shit. Yeah, he's also, of course, the DP for Scanners back on episode 55. A few other films of note from him. He's got some really cool stuff. But Mr. Irwin, we're going to take about uh, the film The Brood, which is another David Cronenberg film. He also helped on uh, Videodrome and The Dead Zone back in 83. D2 Mighty Ducks. I know. We're go- we're definitely going to get in that. This is more of his, like, 80s, right? He directed a hockey film. <laughs> Wait. Holy shit. Now I understand why you decided to split it up by decade, because the 90s gets fucking insane for this guy. Oh, from the 80s, 90s, 2000s. It's crazy. fuck? Yeah, so Youngblood is a hockey movie starring Rob Lowe, Patrick Swayze, Keanu Reeves is in it, believe it or not, as a goaltender. Okay, yeah. All right, uh, moving a little bit forward, he's done The Blob in 88 and Fright Night Part 2, directed by Tommy Lee Wallace, who happened to do Halloween Part 3 which is really cool. He also is the DP on Class of 1999, RoboCop 2, Passenger 57, Showdown in Little Tokyo, starring Dolph Lundgren. Yeah, you said D2, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, Dumb and Dumb Dumber. Dumb and Dumber, Vampire in Brooklyn, Kingpin, yeah, Scream, Steal, while well, they can't all be winners. Right. There's something about <laughs> Mary... Ten Things I Hate About You, Road, Road trip, trip, Me, Myself, and Irene. Freddy Got Fingered? Yep, American Pie Part 2, Old School, Malibu's Most Wanted, Scary Movie Part 3, which I, you know, I can make an exception for. Uh, the Ringer, Grandma's Boy, Big Mama. I know we've talked about them before, but this is unfucking real man, these movies. Oh, my Lanta. There is an episode. I, I looked this up, all right. He directed, or he was a DP of an episode of Tales from the Crypt. It was directed by Peter Seaman. I'm not making that up. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's funny as it is. That episode, when I looked it up, this is actually really cool, because a gentleman we're about to talk about in a second, I actually directed an episode as well for the same season. Okay, so that episode is, it's called uh, My Brother's Keeper. So moving forward, we have editor Ronald Sanders, another gentleman we've talked about before. He helped, of course, on Scanners, right? Another gentleman we'll talk about here in a second, he helped on that as well. But Ronald, a few things of note from him as far as editing. He's, I mean, pretty much all of David Cronenberg's, right? He's helped on... 
yeah, he's helped on Johnny Demonic, which is really cool. He's helped on um, Existence, Coraline, the Bang Bang Club, Maps of the Stars, more recently, The Grizzlies Unfalling, which are really cool. All right, we have Howard Shore composing music. He's pretty much worked on all of David Cronenberg's films. We talked about him more recently because we, for those who need to, you need to check out episode five of our Patreon because we reviewed The Cell. If you really want to listen to our long-winded review of that, you can listen to our original episode, uh, episode five of The Cell. But um, another one of those guys is like, dude, look at his catalog of films. We'd be here a good bit. You don't really need to because the only thing you really need is the Lord of the Rings soundtrack because it's one of the most perfect soundtracks ever composed. Well, I was going to say Dogma, but okay. Yeah. I'll let you have that. (laughs) (laughs) But but yeah, I mean, yeah, he's worked with some big hitters. It's pretty remarkable. Martin Scorsese as well, Gangs of New York, some other films. So yeah, just look down the laundry list of people he's worked with. That, That tells you enough about Howard Shore. All right, the gentleman I wanted to make mention of is a part of our special effects team. So special effects were done by Available Light Productions. They went uncredited. Chris Wallace, he helped with the makeup effects on this. And Intrigue. Now, Chris Wallace, gentleman we talked about before, way back on episode 83, he did some makeup effects, special effects for Arachnophobia. Mm. He's also probably well-known, at least in my opinion, for his work on Gremlins, probably more notably back then. He's also the director of The Fly Part 2, so spoiler there. Oh, okay. And I was talking about gentlemen who's directed episodes of Tales from the Crypt. He did the episode called Till Death, right? So pretty cool there. So a couple gentlemen working on this, and there are some really cool directors on that season as well. But just a few things of note there. All right, now this was produced by Stuart Kornfeld, uncredited production Credited to Mel Brooks, which we talked about before, which is really neat. So production companies on this were SLM Production Group and Brooks Films. The distributor was 20th Century Fox. They helped the 1986 United States theatrical release. Had a release date here in the States and in Canada on August 15th, 1986. Budget was somewhere between 9 to $15 million. It grossed worldwide about $60.6 million, roughly. Not bad. And the tagline on this is, Be Afraid. Be very afraid, which, yeah, we'll talk about that later on. All right. All right. Moving into our cast, some big hitters, not a lot of people, but uh, leading off with a couple from the 80s. I kind of wish that they would have used the tagline from the 58 Fly. Mm. Do you remember that one? I I know I'm going to end up paraphrasing it. I know I don't remember it word for word, but it's, it's something along the lines of, and they would have to change it some because it specifically mentions husband okay but it's something like if she could see what her husband had become Mm. she would never stop screaming something like that gotcha okay okay that makes we'll talk about that we'll talk Mm -hmm. about that okay so jeff goldblum plays the role of seth brundle now as if this is the guy we need to be introducing right how far back do you want to go he actually made an appearance as like a I think he's a, like a thief, a, a house burglar in Death Wish. Charles Bronson's 1974 oh, Death Wish. no shit. Yeah, believe it or not. He has a little bit part in Annie Hall. Has like a, I think he has a, a dialogue, uh, maybe a line or two in that one. But then he started, of course, getting some works and such things as The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, Transylvania 65000. 
Fuck yes, he did. Vibes, Earth Girls are easy. And then um, he started knocking out of the ballpark once he was cast as Dr. E.M. Malcolm in Jurassic Park from 1993. Powder, Independence Day. I don't know, man. How far do you want to get into this? I'll tell you one that I saw earlier. That was funny because it's right up our alley. There's a little power couple called Tim and Eric. Oh, yeah. They made a movie called The Billion Dollar Movie. Right. And Jeff Goldblum stars as Chef Goldblum. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. You guys need to go check it out. I think he even like um, is a well-known pianist, dude. Yes. Yes. So there's... Like that's him playing in the movie. Yeah. 100% that's him. So, yeah. Multi-talented. It's really cool. Speaking of couple, right? I said they were a couple. Gina Davis stars as Veronica Ronnie Quaife. Another actress is like, as we need to introduce her. I started thinking about films way back when, and I can't help but think of A League of Their Own. League of Their Own? I've seen that movie. I can't tell you how many times. Like, so, because, like, I listen to a lot of films to be buried with, Brett Goldstein's podcast, right? Mm -hmm. And he always asks, you know, what's the movie you've seen the most or could watch the most if you just maybe haven't had enough time to watch it that much? Like, if I'm thinking of movies I've seen the most... Either own might be in the top three. Yeah, it's an easy watch. I don't, I don't mean that in a bad way. It's like, it's a fun film. It's just... It, it used to be on TV all the time. All the time. So, yeah, there's a reason for that. Um, so, yes. Oh, another film. Uh, I'd be remiss if I don't mention this. Fucking Beetlejuice. Be- of course. I mean, hello. And, I mean, you already mentioned Transylvania 6, 5,000. Right. She's also in Fletch, which is really cool. And Tootsie as well, which is really neat. Um, I think they're coming out with a new Fletch. Like, I think no they're doing kidding. a series, but it's supposed to be closer to the books. That's so really a little cool. bit less goofy, okay. but... That's still pretty neat. John Hamm, I think, is Fletch. Really? That would be fun. That could be a lot of fun. I think some of our female listeners will probably recognize her for her role as Thelma Dickinson in Thelma and Louise, right? She was also Mrs. Eleanor Little in the Stuart Little films. All three of those, it looks mm-hmm. like. Yeah. I mean, she's also done some television work as well. I was looking at a few things. It was kind of neat. She was, um, let's see. Well, here's the thing. Up until this movie, she was known for television. That's really interesting. Yeah, because she was in a, I looked at it. She was in a show called Buffalo Bill. And I was like, well, who the, what the fuck is that? <laughs> I was like, is that what I think it is? And it's not. It's just like about some dude who running a, a radio show or whatnot, talk show host. And it stars Dabney Coleman. I was like, huh, that's kind of interesting. But yeah, then she started getting some recognition once she's, started getting like little bit parts in films, most notably Tootsie. And then because of our, our work with Jeff Goldblum, he got cast as this first, and then he asked if she could audition. And we'll get into that later. So <laughs> there's that. All right, check out some more of her work. She's really cool. All right, John Getz plays Stathis Borens. Another gentleman's got some really cool bodies of work. Just a few things off the top of my head. He was in Born on the Fourth of July, he was in the Coen Brothers film Blood Simple. Highly recommend that. And a 1990 film starring Emilio Estevez, Charlie Sheen, a little comedy named after a band. Not really. It's not based off the band, but Man <laughs> at Work. <laughs> it's actually a pretty decent comedy. He was also in Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. For those who are 90s kids, you've probably seen Curly Sue. He's in that. So I believe it was a little independent movie. I actually love it. I think I still have the Burn DVD in the other room. He was in a movie called A Day Without a Mexican. I can't say I've seen that's, that. It's really, 
it's good. It's weird. It's yeah. like the entire state of California gets cut off from the world and it's surrounded by this weird purple fog that you can't go through or, mm. and all the Mexicans disappear. Mm. And it's just, everyone else has to survive a week without them. I'm make a lot of, I don't want to say it, but, and make a certain demographic of people happy. And I'm not agreed with that, but anywho, he was in the 2007 film Zodiac starring Jake Gyllenhaal. It's a really good film. <clears throat> he was also in superhero movie. He was in Grey's Anatomy as Michael uh, Breyers, The Social Network. He was also in Law & Order SVU. He's also Mr. St. Pierre Vanderbilt in American Horror Story and in Doom Patrol as Paul Trainer. So he's still getting some really cool works. All right, we have Leslie Carlson plays the role of Dr. Brent Cheevers. This gentleman is actually, we talked about him before, back on episode 99. We had our friend Alex on. We talked about him for... The episode Black Christmas for our Christmas episode for that year, right? He's also in Videodrome, The Dead Zone, A Christmas Story, and he was a part of the Friday the 13th, the series back in 1989. All right, we have Joy Bouchelle. She plays the role of Tawny. She was in The Quest for Fire. She was also a part of Friday the 13th, the series back in 1987. She was in Look Who's Talking and the film Cursed. All right, we have George Tavallo plays the role of Marky. He was in the film Prom Night Part 3, The Last Kiss. He was in the film Dirty Work. I highly recommend that one for Norm MacDonald fans, maybe some Marty Lange fans. <laughs> it's pretty good. And he was also in The Sicilian Vampire. And last but not least, I've got David Oh, you didn't Cronenberg. mention the big thing about Chavala, though. No, I didn't. He's a legit professional boxer and was like a five-times Canadian God, champion. You're right, because he boxed uh, what back in the 60s. Is that right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. He, he fought some big... Weight. I think he fought... Uh, he, don't tell me. I think he fought Ali. And yes, I think he went he the did. distance. If I'm not mistaken, I didn't even look that up, but I remember because I like boxing. Yeah, you're right. That's crazy. Yeah, he went the distance. I remember. Yep, he went yep. the distance. Yep. Yep. I just, I just want. I'm like, I know he fought Ali. Let me take a look. No, at there's, match. there's a little yeah, documentary yeah. about him and Canadian, like French Canadian boxers and whatnot. Because I used to like Arturo Gatti. Anyway, that's a whole different story. <laughs> uh, but I did want to mention, last but not least, David Cronenberg plays the role of the gynecologist. That's right. Here's something a little funny, another little side trivia, because Howard Shore worked with Martin Scorsese. Scorsese wanted to meet Cronenberg. So when he met Cronenberg, he reminded him of like Los Angeles plastic surgeons. So that gave Cronenberg the idea to start playing doctors. Mm. No, actually, you know what? He gives off that vibe. He really fucking does because he's very clinical, very precise. He has certain mannerisms. But, that, I mean, that's, that's not a bad thing. I'm just saying yeah, it's recognizable. This isn't really a spoiler. It's just also more of a comment on the movie, so it belongs a little bit more in the next section. But that's even okay. his style is a little bit more clinical than what we normally— the, This yeah. movie is kind of an exception. I agree. His style's generally a little bit more sterilized than this. Oh, yeah. If you look at his filmography and his... Yeah, I would agree with that, without a doubt. So, yeah, that, I mean, that rounds out our cast and crew. You gave us a setup. Should give you some warnings. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> this might be the movie that we truly, like... Like, this and the thing, right? Like, this is where we use Cronenberg as a fucking descriptor. Yeah, oh yeah. One yeah, you have to. With Cronenberg you have to, especially in this time period. Mm-hmm. Like just body horror, man. Just I body mean, horror. Like this we is we are on a bit of a theme. <laughs> so this fits right in it. This is some of the gnarliest body horror, especially with as big as it got. 
that's, that's true. ever been put on screen. Yeah, so if you are very squeamish when it comes to, like, literally seeing body horror, and that entails a lot of decay and Look, the name of the movie is The Fly. Right, so use but your imagination. Also, just, like, <laughs> there's toenails and fingernails yes. coming off and you teeth coming out. You literally see the stages of a metamorphosis. Mm-hmm. You can fill in the blanks from there. And whatever you're imagining, you, you're probably close. <laughs> language. Yeah, language. There's some sexy stuff. Not a lot. No, I mean, a little yeah, bit, but not a lot. I mean, yeah. it's tame. It's soft. But, I mean, bad things happen to some animals. Yeah, it's, there's that. But, I mean... Especially if you watch the, uh, deleted cu- the deleted scene. Yeah, I didn't, but, yeah, I, I did read about it. <laughs> I did read about it. involves a pipe. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Not the kind you smoke. Well, you could, but I don't recommend that either. Nope. Not that one. <laughs> nope. Don't smoke that pipe. Uh-uh. Well, let's just get to it. Yes, let's do. Let's find out how the fly made us squeal. How does that make you squeal? All right, just because I looked it up, the 58 fly tagline was, if she looked upon the horror her husband had become, she would scream for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. Which that would have been fitting had the original treatment of the screenplay been used. Right, because so the original that, was closer. Yeah. yeah. So well, it was closer in some ways. Exactly. So since we're already on this bit, I can knock this out of the way. We'll go ahead and knock this out. So the reason that gentleman I talked about earlier mm-hmm. got the credit he got is because when Stuart Kornfeld, producer, was handing it off, I mean, he had the idea you know, to, to want to adapt this film when Cronenberg got a hold of it, you know, he's doing a bunch of rewrites and stuff. But once the film, you know, was successful and all this other stuff, he wrote to the Screen Actors Guild. They were the ones who decided not to credit him. But he's like, look, if it wasn't for that original script that was handed to me, I wouldn't even have the idea to film this in the first place or to even use that to jump off of. So he wrote a letter to the Screen Actors Guild Asking them to make sure that this gentleman gets proper credit yeah. for you know helping write a mm-hmm. screenplay for the film because he was the original screenplay writer for this treatment of it. So I was like, that's pretty cool that he would which, do that. Which they were, from what I understand, they were going to go with that treatment until Cronenberg got brought on. Absolutely, they said they wanted to do more of akin to like a Rosemary's Baby with a fly baby, of course, and. Which the, from the marital stuff that goes from along some with it. of the differences I've heard that makes sense. This is a spoiler section, right? It is. So we're going to jump into it. Like that, <laughs> that makes a, more yeah. sense to put the nightmare at the end, which I know is yes, absolutely. Which another little trivia too is Stuart Kornfeld, because he works with Mel Brooks, is also the one who helped Mel Brooks discover David Lynch, hence why he helped distribute the Elephant Man, right. And that's also where, like, Scorsese and a bunch of other people Mm -hmm. in that New York circle found out about a bunch of this stuff, and Canadians were finding out about it. So anyway, there's a big circle of life that goes along with this shit. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, it's kind of a neat tie-in to all these other little stories. So, yeah. That's why the freaking tagline would have made a lot more sense had they used the original tagline. Right. Yeah. But that's not what happened here. Which, that original tagline... Probably ranks amongst one of my favorite taglines of all time. It's always stuck with me since the first time I read it as yeah. like a seven-year-old. When you think of it, and yeah, when you think of what that entails or what that might mean, 
I can conjure up some ideas, you know? So I like it. I like that. It leaves it open to interpretation, imagination. Let's talk about The Fly, right? 1986, The Fly. You have a history with this one. I have a history with this. That we need this. to talk about. I haven't <laughs> watched this film in 20 years. Yeah. Because I, I'm i going to guess around age 16. I can't actually remember for Dude, sure. If, if I'm going to be brutally honest, I haven't watched this. It's been a long time. Probably 20 plus years. Honestly, probably not since the 90s. But where I couldn't tell you in the so 90s. Th- you know what? No, probably 15. Okay. And that probably would make it about 20 because I'm 35 now. So 20 years. I watched it at some point when it was on HBO, and I don't remember where I got up to, especially because this movie, it's hard to tell because it's famous enough that in the years since, it gets brought up on every hmm. fucking yeah, top, list, and, top list and horror documentary and everything in the fucking world ever made. So at some point between 15... And now, any of the scenes I didn't see, I've basically seen anyway. Just only as clips, never in full context. And that makes sense because of how, at this point, it is kind of an iconic film. And while I was watching it, I was trying to remember where I got up to. I can't say for certain. I'm actually pretty sure that I made it almost to the end before (laughs) I tapped out. Like, if I would have given it another five minutes, I probably would have been through. Ah, but you didn't know that. But I didn't know that. Yeah. And Maybe. so, yeah, at some point when I was like 15, I tapped out Wow. in this movie and That's never went I'm back because it was fucking disgusting. Yeah, I hated it's... it. I hated it watching every bit of it. I want to say, if I'm not mistaken, when we first started up the podcast, this is one of those films we had talked about, you know, maybe not even on air, but just in, mm-hmm. you know, just casual conversation. It's like, yeah, I, I knew you had... A certain disposition with this film that was going to be an interesting take once we got around to it. So they, you know, here we are. I had a feeling after we've done so many films that arguably mm-hmm. push the envelope past this film's envelope, mm-hmm. you know, its line, that I, I felt like at this point in your film watching experience, I felt like you could definitely make it through this one. Oh, yeah. I had no <laughs> question I was going to make it through. Yeah, Especially because, like I said, I, at some point in those 20 years, I had seen... Right. All I mean, it. you're going to see so much stuff in that span. Even anytime people are, not even horror, but like if you're Just, watching a documentary about the magic of movies and yes. they go into practical effects, it's clips from this movie get brought in. For a good reason. Otherwise they wouldn't, you know, so. Especially from all the Brundlefly shit. Wow. That's crazy. Because That's be fun talking about, yeah. Like all of that is incredible. And I still find this movie super fucking disgusting. But now I mean that more as a compliment on, like, the technical level of what's achieved in this movie. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Just of what's achieved all around in this movie. This movie is a fucking masterpiece. Guess what? That's my short version of this is this movie needs to be in more lists top five than it is. I would tend to agree with that. I say I think it no, makes no, top I mean, it, fifteen it, it, almost all the time, top ten pretty it, often, but it needs that, to be in yeah. more lists, top five. Yeah, it's a, I would be hard pressed to argue because there's a lot of things that are in its favor, without a doubt. Any of the minor critiques aren't enough to make it not be a, a top film, and it, it doesn't even have to be horror; it could be sci-fi too, for mm-hmm. that matter. You know, 
you could go with that bent if you wanted to, and I'd still be like, okay, I, you know. Romantic comedy. I could see that too. Yeah. Fucking uh, super uh, bleak black comedy. You could say this is a tragic comedy as well. Mm-hmm. As well. So, you know, there's bits of that. I mean, opera, freaking Howard Shore wrote the music for an opera of this, an opera treatment. So, <laughs> yeah. Ah, that tells you something. It has a cultural impact, and it made stars out of Jeff Goldblum and, and Gina Davis, or quite arguably, and this is one of the first very, very successful films from Cronenberg, arguably one of his most, if not the most well-known out mm-hmm. of his catalog. So that says something as well. And it also just should be uh, as something that we rag about very often is how so many movies really could drop like 10 minutes and be good. Like this movie doesn't overstay its welcome. Gets right to the fucking business. I like that. And gets out of it even right when the story ends. Yeah. It doesn't. There's not really story after that. Yeah. It doesn't have, it doesn't give you much to really chew on after the fact. And I know that there were scenes that were filmed to come after that. Yeah. But they didn't work. No. And guess what? It's because it doesn't need them. It ends right where the story ends. I like that. I like that about this film. From start to finish, and that's something I think I'm starting to get a little bit more used to, the idea of is when you're dropped into the middle of a story, you know, you don't get much background at all Mm -hmm. as the film starts off. You're just introduced to, you know, Seth Brundle and Ronnie Quaif. And you start to learn about them, which somebody had made mention. When you don't even you don't even learn her last name is Quaif in the movie. No, no, no. That's what I'm getting at. So there's a lot of this stuff where Cronenberg does this, and this is not my take on it. This is something I heard in interviews, where he is known Cronenberg that is for kind of building character development as the movie progresses. Right. So he says this particular gentleman was like Cronenberg. He starts off with like kind of a cold approach to these characters. They're kind of almost still like you don't know exactly what who they are or what they're about. And then, yeah, as the movie progresses, they come slowly become more like protagonistic characters, somebody you can latch on to or feel sympathetic for, stuff like that. So he does a good job as that film, as the film progresses too, which says a lot about his writing technique as well. So my, my point being, I was like, that can be, I don't know. I, I feel like some people might have a hard time with that. Trying to like, who are these people? What the, why should I care about this? What's you know, like that kind of stuff. Like, why do I care? If she's a journalist, mm-hmm. and he's creating this thing, and then that kind of motif. But this film is more than that. That's what I'm getting at. It's like you, you are encapsulated by this time period that you're thrust into with these characters, and that's what makes it interesting. Man, and this is another one where there's just the the layers too, lots because it's easy to take this on its face. Compared to most other films that we describe as having layers, I think this might be the easiest to take it on its face. Yeah. Because it's yeah. just a pretty standard mad scientist, science goes awry story. Makes right. sense I that mean, it's based really, on a short story. It feels like a short story. Right. It does feel very kind of like Pulp Fiction-y. And not in a bad way. No, no, no. It doesn't. That, exactly. There's no negative connotation with that. It's just it has that style. I was feeling this before I did my research. And I know there's no way to prove that to people and, like, (laughs) just make it sound like I'm smart. Because I know that Cronenberg has talked in interviews about this as well, which is what I found out when I started doing my research. But, like, it's also kind of a horror story about aging. Yeah, and that makes sense. 
That makes sense. But not in like a natural way though either. No. It's still a very, very sci-fi aging. Of like, course, it's sped up. It's a sped up. But that's kind of what makes it the horror. Exactly, because it's a feeling that at some point we're all probably going to have some kind of way about, you know, mm-hmm. good, bad, doesn't matter. You're going to feel a certain way about it. And yeah, it's a real fear for some people, the aging process, the prospect of death, things of that nature. Certain topics we've talked about across different subgenres too, how the idea of death is, is expressed or heralded or maybe just kept quiet, you know, bury mm-hmm. it. And that's that. So it's an interesting take on that. You know, where, but I, it's still kind of like a sci-fi take. No, it is. Which is kind of, which is also interesting and could almost be rewritten as its own short story. It, it has a little bit of a feel of H.G. Wells's The Time Machine, you mm, know, in mm-hmm. a sense. Although it's, you know, it's not messing with time. This is just teleportation to and from it. It's still that sci-fi element. Well, with the way that the time works in this, what it kind of, what it kind of reminds me of is Click. Oh, yeah. Adam Sandler. Uh, yeah, that's kind of funny, but it is. It's And how, it, like, as he keeps using it, it keeps sort of yeah, speeding, speeding up. up. Yeah, and that makes sense, too. And this is kind of like, in the beginning, he gets that, like, first month of it actually being kind of a good thing. Right, and he doesn't but then realize that it goes down. Slope. Yeah, the very fast decline of a life cycle of a fly. I, this is a, a weird one to bring up, but I'm going to have to. You mentioned HBO. If there's a show, I would recommend people who like animation, comedy, all that stuff, stoner comedies. I would highly recommend Animals because they have a episode dedicated about flies. And it's funny how, and I don't want to spoil it too much, but how the a day in the life of a fly is like an entire life cycle for us. And they play it out like that over the course of that day. Right. So it gives you a little bit of a perspective on the difference and, and how time is very relative in that sense, right? Because mm-hmm. he's not working on human time anymore. He's working on fly time. <laughs> and that's different. <laughs> they have a very high metabolistic rate and all this other shit. But I think they do a good job of expressing that in this film by his mannerisms and the things he does to express that he's becoming a fly. Mm-hmm. Or that he's fused with one. So, yeah. But, I mean, when, getting into the movie, the oh, first shit. thing I want to say is, like, that <laughs> Howard Shore score... From the get-go. Oh, dude, it's so good. From the get-go. Especially because yeah. it starts on a like a traditional opening credit sequence. And I like that, too. The more we watch films, it's more indicative of the time periods they come out of. And not that it's a signature, but it's it could be for that time period. Those kind of title mm-hmm. sequences. So, yeah, feels at home. And then, as I was kind of saying earlier, this movie wastes no time. Uh, right into it. The first words of this movie are what the movie's about. Yeah, he sets it up precisely, right? I would be paraphrasing, but I'll let you do it. What am I working on? I'm working on something that will change the world and human life as we know it. That's the entire premise of the rest of the film. (laughs) So there was a couple things like that I kind of picked up on the more I watched this film. And once again, something I've talked about in the past, we both have is you know, the more we get our eyeballs on a film, the more we tend to get to watch them, the more things we'll pick up on. You just can't help it, especially mm-hmm. if you're paying attention and reviewing films. So, Oh, um, I know we were kind of getting in the beginning of the film, but something yeah, I no, just okay. also want to say about the film in general, although far before his time period, this is also the closest thing, in my opinion, that I have seen from the West 
that does as good of a job of genre jumping and mm. bending as Takashi Miike's stuff. Solid point, man. You know, it's... And I think some of it's argue. just because of... Like, the first third of this movie works as a romantic comedy. Yeah. But it's mostly because of the chemistry of Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis, who <laughs> were, were an actual couple yeah, at exactly. the time, so Pretty they had easy. to tone it back, apparently, so... Yeah, it's like, hey, chill. <laughs> we're making a movie here. <laughs> but no, I, I'm just teasing, but yeah. Well, I think, what was it that I had read that, like, they had been together, because they got together in Transylvania 6 5000? Sounds about right. Sounds about right. And then we're getting a little bit more serious by this movie, and then married in 87. I can't remember during... That's about right. 87, 88, somewhere. And then we're divorced by 90. (laughs) Yeah, it was just a quick romance, and that's, you know... But with this, this is where they were... I think probably like had moved in together at this point and stuff. And she had started taking on some of his talking mannerisms. <laughs> That's funny. So Cronenberg had to be like, no, <laughs> you sound like Jeff. <laughs> That's too funny. Yeah. That is fucking funny, man. Now I did mention earlier, I'll get into this really quick since we're talking about that is two people were initially thought of to be cast for the role of Brundle. Right. This is a, a case of if you know, you know, but if you don't know, do you know by any chance who was considered? I know three names that were considered. Oh, okay. One that auditioned. Lithgow auditioned. I didn't know that. That's cool. I don't know who else you're bringing up, though, because I okay. know he actually auditioned. That's really dope. I didn't know he auditioned. John Malkovich was the first choice, mm. but he never read the script because Mel Brooks confronted his agent he's like yeah john malkovich is not available he's like but has he read the script and he kept kind of deflecting and he's like well i want to know if he's read the script because i've got some questions about the script i want to talk to him about (laughs) and so he called a bluff mel brooks did so they moved on and then they considered a a gentleman named bill Irwin, who i looked at his filmography that son of a bitch worked on like all kinds of elmo stuff so okay yeah um, he's well known for that. He's done up some other stuff that's actually pretty cool, but I didn't know about John Lithgow. But then they considered. Um, oh, I know one of the other names, Pierce yeah. Brosnan. Really? That's really interesting. I could see somewhat of that working somewhat. See, I believe, I think Malkovich was the producer's first choice. Yeah, definitely. Brosnan was Brooks's first choice. Uh, that's really cool. Yep, Cornfeld had a couple guys in mind. Because, once again, he was steering mm-hmm. certain connections in place. Because he had already worked, I mentioned earlier, with Mel Brooks on The Elephant Man. And they considered Cronenberg because they're like, hey, you know, he's Canadian. A. And it also helps with the fact that we've talked about this in Canada. Around tax season, for them, is like the end of the third quarter going into, like, the fourth quarter. It's tax write-off season. Mm-hmm. So that's where, you know, they can say, hey, this is how much money we can right off and we'll make a film. So that's what they did. So they found funding for it and all that stuff. So those are who they were going after and one that auditioned and didn't get it. There was two that turned it down. Mm, let's hear it. That it was offered to Richard Dreyfus. Yeah. Interesting. I don't see it working with Dreyfus though. I mean, maybe Mel Gibson. Wow. I'm wondering, like, let me ask this. <laughs> I'm wondering though, if it was for the first treatment 
Right. Probably for the first treatment. That's what I'm thinking, because Richard Dreyfus will make a lot more sense for that family guy yes. element, whereas like Mel Gibson and Pierce Brosnan would fit somewhat for the Goldblum kind of aspect. Brosnan of can go either way. I, yeah, he's flexible. Gibson, I mean, he could, but I think that time period, he's a little bit more, mm-hmm. yeah, not a family guy. <laughs> Honestly, I could be wrong, but that's interesting. Gina Davis, because of Goldblum. Goldblum. Goldblum pitched the idea to Cronenberg. He's like, hey... Can Gina read the lines for Veronica? She's already been helping me work on my lines. Right. And, and so I think she, she sounds did. great. And this is what this is according to, and then I got my notes here. It says this is according to producer Stuart Kornfeld. He's this is actually, I know we're jumping off of, but one other note I'll bring up with him is that Cronenberg heard her read the line. He's like, okay, we got we got our cast. We got our we got our and then Stuart's like, dude, we haven't even auditioned anybody. And he said they went through the whole auditioning process, and Gina was still the best that read those lines. And, you know, because they had the chemistry, it was kind of a fucking mm-hmm. no-brainer at that point, you would think. So anyhow, he was like, yeah, Cronenberg was right. <laughs> so second point I wanted to make with this guy is Kornfeld, this is according to him, he was friends with Frank Zappa. Zappa wrote a song for it. Zappa actually scored the entire fucking movie for it before it was even filmed, like before principal photography was even in process. Mm-hmm. And that's what Story was like, dude. He's like, uh, you know, they gave it to him. It was, you know, Howard Shore ultimately. Right. But he's like, you know, thanks because they said Zappa like was the hardest guy to get to do anything for like movies and stuff. Does that exist? Unreleased, probably. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I could be wrong, but. Because I'd love to hear it. Yeah, I'm going to bite my tongue for a sec because I don't, you know, I, there could be. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. There could be. Okay. Yeah, so I was like, that's that's really interesting. So, anywho, yeah. That's how that worked out with Gina Davis. And part of the reason why Goldblum was cast, too, is Mel Brooks said he reminded him, Goldblum reminded him of, like, the Jewish kind of best friend always got the girls. And so he was kind of, he fit kind of a certain bill for that character. Mm. Now, Cronenberg... Like Gina right away. He has admitted there was one other thing in interviews as to why she got cast. I have no idea. I didn't do, I didn't do my research on that. Her and Goldblum were almost the same height. She's six feet tall. I, did, I do know that because I was like, I was looking at her height. I was like, what? And he's 6'4". So it's easy to frame them together. It makes total sense. You don't have to do perspective shots. Right. That makes sense when you're... Filming a movie, and you're thinking about some of those stuff. tall guys in the movies have a hard time casting against them because then you run into short like actresses that played opposite, and that makes sense. You know, that's kind of interesting because I've always had that misconception about heights with actors, and then you mm-hmm. realize with certain actors, like I'm going to use just a few as an example, like Ben Stiller is like maybe five seven, right? And Tom Cruise is like five four. Guys five, three. that <laughs> like, look what? tall in the movies are probably. Generally, like five ten. I know, which is taller than me, but that's not tall. No, that's like average, you know. Mm -hmm. But I I know what you're saying. It's just it's it's interesting. Michael J. Fox is like five five. Yeah, but growing up, I didn't think about that. I was like, these guys are like grown ass men. I'm not (laughs) that they're not, and I'm not disparaging like heights. I'm just saying there's a misconception with the way people are framed on camera Mm -hmm. that to me makes them look taller than what they really are. So the fact that they were already both similar heights, he was like, well, this makes my job a lot easier. Yeah, and like I said, from somebody we just mentioned who's clinical and probably more thoughtful and technical, it's like, yeah, I don't. that's a no-brainer. But they have the chemistry. Yeah. 
she fits within the frame of, of the <laughs> shots together with Goldblum. I don't have to think about aspect ratios and all this other stuff. Yeah, I'm good. We're good. Perfect. Steward, we're good. <laughs> so, yeah, that's really cool, man. Before that, though, yeah, because she was brought in by Goldblum, there were some people that he wanted. Canadian actresses, I'm assuming? I believe his first choice was Linda Hamilton. Ooh, interesting. And the producers eventually kind of wanted an unknown, which Gina Davis arguably was compared to the others at the time. But before that, Laura Dern, Sally Field, and Jennifer Jason Lee were all considered. I could see if David Lynch did his interpretation, it would be Laura Dern 100%. That won't even be a question. (laughs) That won't even be an audition. (laughs) And Kyle MacLachlan would have been Jeff Goldblum's character. So that's David Lynch's The Fly. (laughs) The Fly. (laughs) You know? There's also a lot more talking backwards in that one. It's strange. It's going to get, it's going to get weird. It's going to, yeah, buckle up. Arguable whether it's going to be any darker or not. No, darker is, it's very subjective, but it's going to get, it's going to be weird. (laughs) It's going to be very esoteric, maybe. (laughs) So yeah, no, all jokes aside. It's still interesting thinking about that too, like the casting, like who could have and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. That would have been neat, but I think it, this fits for what this film conveys. Back into the movie, I guess. Like he also just we were talking, we went off on all that tangent just because the There's movie wastes no time. Here. There's yeah. a lot of info. The movie wastes no time. It tells you exactly what it's getting into. It does. And Jeff wastes no time. Yeah. And it's we keep talking about their chemistry. It's kind of adorable because you can't really tell if he's trying to hit on her or if he's this big of a nerd that he's just genuinely this excited to show off. Yeah. It's like yeah, I gotta. New espresso machine is not the kind, the plastic kind. It's one you find in a coffee shop. It's like, I can tell you don't get out much. You can tell. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, it's a nice back and forth. It feels natural. It's fluid. They get back to his place. One of the first bits of genius fucking comedy in this movie that's <laughs> known for the fucking crazy-ass body horror is that when he... <laughs> Hmm. is that his computer responds to voice commands and he's been the one programming it this entire time. So when he puts in his name, it recognizes the Jeff Goldblum. Uh. That's funny. <laughs> he goes, uh, Brundle Seth. And then uh. the computer responds back, uh, Brundle Seth. And it recognizes it like, nope, that's definitely Seth Brundle. It's definitely Seth, Jeff Goldblum Brundle. <laughs> that's, not, that's hilarious. I think most people by now, if you're a fan of Goldblum, you know that about him. Uh, um, uh. Which has always been a thing. Like, I, Right, he's aware of it. It's kind of wild he got as many roles early in his career that he did stumbling with having that little... I mean, it's... It's not it's stumbling. A, no, it's, it's, a, it's you're right. It's, it's like a natural his kind of mannerism. Pause. Yeah. Yeah, but I thoughts. feel like a lot of times, especially in early roles, like you're really having to prove yourself and like, this point. is what I can do. Like, let me show you my range and this and that. And Jeff Goldblum always kind of just plays Jeff Goldblum. And I think, too, like when he you're, switches it up, he's fantastic. He's fantastic. No, he definitely is. He can be that bumbling, somewhat bumbling kind of, you know, charismatic guy. Or he can be kind of frightening if he wants to be. No matter how good he's doing, and there's, especially in this movie, there's parts where he is fantastic. 
I never, I never lose fact that it's Jeff Goldblum though. Yeah. At this point, you know, we know who he is. (laughs) Some of his physicality, like some of his, the shit that he's doing in this movie physically to be Brundlefly is next level, but he's still just so Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, he can't help it, man. You can't escape who you are. You know what I mean? It's like they say, no matter where you go, there you are. Yeah. You're still Jeff Goldblum. And that's a good thing, man. I love Jeff Goldblum. I also, I like how the movie and the script in particular gets around having to technobabble everything. Yeah. Where he's just like, oh, no, I just, like, I put this together. I don't know how any of the individual pieces work. He's like, I just know the theory behind how making this work goes. And so I know that I need this piece and this piece and this piece. And I just put them together. Got a question for you. Okay. That I'm glad you brought that up because that's it's obvious. That's what he says. But that to me begs a question about how this film is written in terms of its premise and setup and all that other stuff is that it says that he's a scientist. And I'm like, he's sounds more like an engineer. Uh, the way he describes his relationship with his company, it sounds like he's cheap enough and nameworthy enough that they kind of let him do whatever the fuck he wants. As Probably long as at he's this not... point, mm-hmm. yeah, which would make more sense. Because even Stathis says later on in the film, he's like, you know, he did the F-32, whatever the fuck it was for he physics. Was, yeah, he was an inch away from the right. Nobel Prize. He was only 20 at the time. So that probably is that expo is like, that's where he's the scientist in this equation. It says now he's getting enough funding where he can get other people to do the work for him. He's like, I just need these parts to make this work. I have the vision for it. I don't know all the intricacies of it. You do that part. Yeah. I'll get you the funding. I'm not going to go learn no. fucking this entire yeah, science to build this sense. one bit for this no, machine. No, no, no. I just know that I need this bit right, in for order for this, this entire thing to work. Yeah, and that makes more. He sees the bigger picture. He doesn't know all the intricacies of the ins and outs of the rest of that shit. Guess what? A lot of fucking sci-fi could learn from this. It does. It cuts down, like you said, on so much techno babble where you don't have to give so much expo and get bored to death with it. You can be like, I'm not that guy. You know, that's, this is how this works because a, we have a team that puts it together. I agree. Gina Davis has a line in the film where she says that at a certain point, she's just like, she says something to the point where it's just like, I'm confused. Like who's confused? I am. She's like, and he's like, no, it's just teleporting. That's all that is. I'm just teleporting this object to there. <laughs> That's all that is. He's like, I'll show you. Said, yeah. And then, then he chose, you know, the rest of the film kind of plays itself out. But something I noticed, I think it was the second time in the film, maybe even the first time through as well was when they're having their little romantic scene and he rolls over and there's like this little, you know, electronic mm-hmm. piece that embeds itself. I mean, it's a foreshadowing moment. It was like, oh, that's kind of clever. Not only because it's, you know, it shows up on his back later in the film, but that's kind of an, a, a fusion of man and machine. Right. It's already sticking to him. Little does he know what that means much later on. But that's a very, very, very early tell. And that's just an accidental thing. I was like, ah, oh, that's... It's kind of interesting they did that. One of the great things about this is how neatly everything ties back together. He already has a propensity for vomiting, which becomes critical to his survival later. Yeah, that's a complete tie-in. He's building a teleporter. Well, 
of course he's building a teleporter. You just found out how he becomes <laughs> he motion like sick. He to travel. <laughs> yeah. He becomes yeah. motion sick if he walks across the room too fast. Right. Like, threw up on a tricycle. Yeah. Crying out loud. So, yeah, no, you're right. That's clever. It's like, yeah, that gives this reason, that gives that reason, and it all ties back into this thing he has, you know? And I was like, yeah, that's clever. That's what I'm getting at, too, with what they said about his writing at Cronenberg. It's like, you don't know that initially about him. But the more you learn about him, it's like, oh, this is actually a person with real things that we deal with, too. You know, that might be mm-hmm. exaggerated, but we can all relate somehow. Uh, other than, well, like, I suppose we can relate. Everyone knows somebody like this. But Jesus Christ, everybody's fucking name in this. Like, does <laughs> nobody have, like, a... a, a Ronnie, Marty, Tawny... Well, no, well, what I'm thinking, it's like <laughs> Seth, Ronnie, Stathis. I know. I was like, Stathis? Uh, is like, I, I would have said it like Stathis Barans or whatever. Right. It doesn't matter. Stannis Baratheon. <laughs> I know. I was like, yeah. <laughs> Who's this Viking? <laughs> yeah, Stathis. But then everybody's got not standard last names. Yeah. Quaif. It's not fucking Brundle. Seth Seth Smith, Brundle. Yeah, Brundle. <laughs> yeah, you got all, Excuse me. You got all these Brundlefly. <laughs> what, dude? It's like, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that fits. Like, apologies to any Brundles out there. It's just not a standard movie last name. Yeah, you're right. It's not a Jackson, a Smith, a Jones, or anything like that. Common last name. And especially for something that's going to be said fifty times in the movie. You know, but I, I like that because I think it helps distinguish. Mm-hmm certain characters too where it's like you can get lost and you know like you said the, the Mike Smiths or the Matt Joneses or whatever you know no discredit to people who have those names but point being is like there's a lot of people named that there's not a lot of people who named Seth Brundle or Stathis Borens or Veronica Quaid. Stathis Borens is the one that blows my fucking mind yeah exactly he sounds like he's out of a fucking fantasy novel I know sounds like something uh it's fucking House of the Dragons. George R. <laughs> Martin would write. <laughs> anyway. Stathis has a weird twist in this movie. He does. That he actually kind of ends up being a hero in the end. Yeah, because he and comes... And really, maybe not that bad of a guy? No, it's like he kind of comes off initially as a prude and probably a, a little bit of a misogynist and things like that. You know, you can make those arguments. I mean, he's definitely he's got something going on, and it's still like red flags. And just because he saved you, you probably shouldn't go out with him after this, Gina Davis. Yeah, but here's the problem I have with that too. But is that she doesn't really fight it much. I mean, yeah, she she you know she puts up a fight to an extent, but she still loves him. She says it. I mean, she fucking says it. There's still, yeah, too many red flags for, from him. But yes. But yes, we yes, only yes. get to see him in like three instances. Very short clips, very short And it segments. seems like maybe he's not a terrible guy. Yeah, he's just horny. <laughs> he's just a shitty guy. Yeah, I'm, yeah I'm, not saying I, I'm not saying he's a good guy. I'm not saying it's an excuse. He's just horned up. and He can rise to the occasion when needed, though. <laughs> and he was needed at the end. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's Oh, I want to. We'll, we'll get there. We'll it was get kind there. of fucked up how he didn't give her the key back. Yeah, you know, I, I agree. I agree. But also, you know, like I said, we don't know the full extent of their relationship. Right. Well, we know that. Well, 
okay, we don't know from the movie. Right. We know from deleted scenes that they were together for two years. So, you know, I'm sure in the context of the film, mind you, (laughs) there's some residual things happening. Why he would have the key, why they're having this back and forth. It's probably normal to them. I'm not saying it's normal, but to them it probably is. Yeah. To an, some, uh, because it's not normal, know. though, still kind of fucked up. No, it is. I'm not, <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> I'm not yeah, making yeah. an excuse. It's yeah, yeah, fucked yeah. regardless. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So anyhow, I, I did like, ah, it's one of those things we've run across in films before, but I'm thinking like this. Okay, if you're taking the original, which I still haven't seen, but I know kind of they like throwing the romance thing in there, right? And it's like, and if you're going to do that angle, this is an interesting way of doing that love triangle without it being too cliché even though it's still a little tropish. Mm-hmm. But I think they did the treatment of it well. Well, it's weird, too, because it's like it sets up a love triangle and then completely fucks with it. Oh, yes. It's like the saddest version, like the saddest outcome of the love triangle. Say, it's, it's a tragic comedy. And I don't mean, like, haha, you know what I mean, in the classical Greek sense. Because... Like, movie love triangles, there's usually an obvious, well, duh, she should be with this guy. Yes. In the, yeah, modern sense. (laughs) Yes. Absolutely. And that is Seth. But then, as soon as she gets with Seth, he starts to change. Yes. Into something she can't be with. is a relatable thing in relationships in general. Mm -hmm. You know? You have this very, like, they go through that honeymoon phase, and then they move in. And then things get a little weird. And then, you know, he's kind of pushing her away, obviously for his reasons, you know. Well, I mean, we were talking about this movie has layers. If you want to, one of the other ways I thought you could interpret this is just about the story of relationship. Yeah. That gets broke apart because of one partner's selfishness. And I, I think it'd be really easy to look at it as even a metaphor for drug addiction. Yeah. There's a lot of things it's been... Kind of, you know, compared to, it's not a secret anymore that this was comparative, uh, like a metaphor for the AIDS mm-hmm. epidemic back then. And it's like, you know, Cronenberg himself said it's not, nah, it's more akin for him with the age and death scenario and maybe analogous to disease in general, like mm-hmm. cancer and things like that, you know, which he says he understands why it AIDS, would get right. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, you could see it. It's a body deteriorating relationship being strained because of something this person has is changing them. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, I would imagine at that point too in time, that's like, ooh, that's, that's a hard hitting subject. So you can understand why people would attach that to it. But anywho, I didn't really read it that way. I think it's like you were saying, you can read it as more like the sci-fi aging yeah. sticks out more to me. Cause it's kind of like his character was able to like, keep himself from maturing or even from like mm. hitting puberty. Now, obviously he's a grown man in the movie, right, but, but like in a metaphorical sense, it's like he kept himself even from hitting puberty in order to perfect what he was working on. That's a solid point. Um, because he was having such success as being like, you know, the scientist and this researcher and engineer and whatnot, <sighs> almost like a, a self-induced castrati, you know, where this... they would keep the kids you know, they would castrate them to keep the voices pure for right. the, the singing ability. But it was like in this movie, he gets so far with that and he gets to this hang up and he doesn't understand the flesh enough. And so the machine doesn't understand the flesh enough. Like he says, computers are dumb. They only understand what we tell it. Right, exactly. 
So I have to learn more about the flesh where I was like, holy shit, you can do a giant spinoff with that and where he goes and finds a certain puzzle box. And that would be really interesting way for him to learn about the flesh, too. Yes. (laughs) A little tie in. Yeah, exactly. A little spinoff. But he learns about the flesh, obviously, with Gina Davis. They hook up and he realizes he needs to change so that the computer can change. And so it's like he self actuates puberty at that point mm. which the first things we see is he starts growing weird hair from places uh, and yeah, his no, face gets point. super fucking blotchy because he looks baby face he's got very you know smooth skin and all that stuff even in the text they comment on it she's like what's this fucking hairs and shit and he's like well maybe i'm you know just becoming a man and maturing like been looking forward to a, a hairy body like I've always yeah. felt too boy-like or whatever. You know, no, that's, it's an interesting weaving of, like, social commentary and the actual aging of a person using, you know, like, analogies or metaphors and things like that. It's It works. And while he's in that time page, like, that puberty, mm-hmm. it's like he suddenly gets stronger and he's doing all this like, cool shit and he's like... He thinks he's hot shit. He thinks he's on top of the world. He can fucking fuck for hours. Exactly. And that's... But then eventually it gets past that. That is the really clever thing because you can interpret it two ways in that. I think you can. In that essence, like, you can read it from just a very, very quick progression of somebody's life, right? Like Mm -hmm. you were saying, they hit puberty, boom, then everything speeds up. Or you can read it in the film sense, too, is like once he was fused and he took on that genetic makeup of the fly, you can interpret it as like, now his body's going through the metabolic rate of a fly, his lifespan. So that everything to him is heightened, it's sped up, and then once he hits that plateau and starts to go down that downward spiral, which is a lot faster in the span of a life of a fly, (laughs) comparatively to a Mm -hmm. human, yeah, hence why it's such a rapid decay and such a fast progression. But you can read it both ways because it's it's right there. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's the beauty of this filmmaking with him. So, While tied in with the relationship metaphor. It's an interesting way of weaving all these things together. And it fits nicely. It fits perfect. And just, like I said, a breakdown of the triangle. Because like he, yeah. who he started as is arguably who she should be with. Exactly. But that's not the case. And she shouldn't be <laughs> with Stathis. Right. But he right, ends right. up being the hero. Whether or not she ends up with him That's depends on right, right, right. which of the four different endings, Gosh, and they all got yeah. cut because none of them tested well. Like, nobody liked them. So, <laughs> yeah. But he's still the hero, whether she should be with him or not. Regardless, exactly. And she has had to be the one to get rid of the person she should be with. And maybe his last <sighs> second of tough, truly being, or of having a second of being him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like a bit of humanity left. Mm-hmm. I think that's... An interesting thing that we, like, we didn't, it's interesting that we don't do these things on purpose. Like, we didn't choose this film on purpose. Like, hey, we were picking Shinya Tsukamoto's of The Body Hammer because it's such, like, the fly in that respect. Like, these guys are, are losing their humanity because of this metamorphosis they're going through. But there's still a bit of that humanity left, in this case, with the female relationship that they're still holding on regardless of or I'll say regardless but in spite I should say in spite of this metamorphosis there's still a little bit of that hope but not really (laughs) not really 
this movie also has maybe the greatest fake out of all time because <laughs> of how long it takes to realize it's a fucking fake out. It's so good. <laughs> Man, I chuckled a couple of times in this film. I don't know if I, was, if I should have, but I don't care. I did. But yeah, I want to hear I want to hear what you have to say. That well, that was one of the bits that I remembered happened. So when it started in on all that, and I'm like, I couldn't remember where the nightmare started, but at a certain point, I'm like, oh yeah, she's dreaming right now. Right, 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 right. I was like about her pregnancy. And yeah, yeah. I'm like, I'm like, she's about to have a maggot baby. Yeah, and she does. <laughs> we we said maggot, not maga. Yeah. <laughs> Some would argue no difference. A little bit before that, I will say I had forgotten what the baboon ends up looking like turned inside out. Yeah. That's, and that was that mostly more just like, like man, poor, balloon, of, poor baboon. Yeah. But there's also a part of me, I'm like, why? who the fuck starts with baboons? Why didn't we see an inside-out rat? Dude, I'm like, yeah, exactly. Like, where the fuck are you getting baboons from, dude? You want to hear something interesting if, if you haven't read this already? Or, or This is kind of coincidence with us watching Nope more recently. Mm. Spoiler, especially if you haven't watched it. But the fact that this baboon in the film is named Typhoon, huh? pretty similar to Typhoon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, because of Jeff Goldblum's like physical presence, it felt subdued around him, right? And so, whenever it was feeling anxious on set, especially around you know female cast, Goldblum's presence would calm it down. Oh shit! And they said, yeah, it saved them like a lot of problems because we talked about Lee Remick and the Omen mm-hmm. and the car scene where that baboon went ape shit. Yeah. So it very easily could have gone belly up, you know what I mean? But it didn't. So thankfully for them, Goldblum was a good handler on set, which is kind of interesting because there was a scene where he goes in like he's hugging the baboon. And I was like, are you going in for a fucking kiss right now? What are you doing? That thing will rip your face off, right? (laughs) Shit. But maybe I'm the one who's mistaken. Maybe he gets those kisses. Maybe I'm jealous. Oh, man. I had forgotten him doing the test with the steak. Yeah, I totally, I would have never guessed that if somebody would have cold questioned me that one. But man, that made me laugh so hard. I think it was a couple of weeks ago when I brought up uh, fucking Better Off Ted. Did you ever see any of that? Better, no, I didn't. I didn't. He's like fucking public relations of this giant Omnicorp, the main character and shit. And they're like a super evil, super megacorp. Gotcha. And he's trying to pass off their shit as being, like, legit and this or that and, like, trying to keep some projects going. And yeah. Anyway, there's an episode where they're dealing with lab-grown meat. Ah. <laughs> but the biggest problem is the taste. And it just reminded me of the first, like, joke bit in that episode <laughs> where they're showing, like, the taste tester go through it. And he's just like, I'm probably, I can't remember the exact descriptor. So this is a paraphrase, but I'm pretty sure he's just like, yeah, it tastes like despair. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> but they do a pretty good job, though, to, to give you the idea. You know, like the machine is mimicking, but it doesn't understand the true essence of what this is. And it's clever because it's setting all those things up, too. But then, you know, you could say, well, hell, maybe he's making a statement on... That, but I don't think so. I think it's mm-hmm. just, you know, within the frame of the film, it makes sense because he's trying to get the machine to understand what tissue and flesh and what all this other stuff is. So that way, when you put a fucking organic material in there, you know. If he would have just installed an undo button. <laughs> <laughs> I know. 
<laughs> Mulligan. My bad. Redo. <laughs> Reset. Yeah. Well, that's what the one thing I started thinking. I'm like, man, <laughs> if he would have just realized from the get go what his problem was, like, I wonder mm. if he could have figured out some way to reverse it. You know, that's interesting. Like reassembly of the DNA. Ch- I don't know. Like the sequencing, I suppose. Or like, I feel like there has to be in the realm where this is already possible in this universe mm. using the computers that they were using. I, 1980s computers. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to give it some slack here. So in that realm, I have to imagine there's some way to make the computer identify the fly bits within mm. Brundlefly and extract them back out into two things. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Like, separate? Mm-hmm. I, I would imagine so. There has to be, at a certain point, it, like, deviations. But by the time he accepts that's what's happening, like, his brain is starting to go, too. Oh, yeah. I it's, mean, his brain's starting to go right uh, away, because he's... Because he's not acting in character right afterwards. No, you, and he does a good job, Goldblum is, of expressing that. His mannerisms, mm-hmm. the way he, everything feels heightened at first. Almost like he's on this, I don't know, dopamine kick or whatnot. Man, and that's the thing. Like Once that happens, then you really get into what this movie is. Because the whole last half of the movie is yeah. the slow deterioration of wow, Brundlefly. Man. And that's where this movie earns... All of its reputation, plus just the special effects mastery, are is put on display as you just. But that's the true body horror is not that it happens; it's that it happens over the course of forty minutes. Exactly, you're right. It's not a one-time shot. You're right. It's it's the process, and that's the smart thing, I guess. Too, when you think about that life cycle of a fly, the stages it goes through during that metamorphosis. And mm-hmm. that's what we're kind of seeing the stages of him developing into a fly and the breakdown of him as a person, the decay, <laughs> you know, and it's like, whoa, this, whoa. Like we've talked in the past about like that build up where the audience knows something that the characters don't. And it's like the bomb underneath the table. You mm-hmm. have jump scares where nobody knows that the bomb's underneath the table until it goes off. But you have the draw, you know, the slow burn shit where we as the audience know and we keep watching this conversation happen between these characters at this table and it's like, oh shit. And it just keeps mounting like, when is it going to, when's it going to pop? When is it going to blow? We know it's there. This movie has that in an unconventional way because we know that the fly was there. And now we have to watch these characters find out what that means. And when he first reveals to Gina Davis that he went through, she's just like, what'd you do that for? You could have killed yourself. Even if you don't know what the end of this movie is, as the audience, there's a small part of you that kind of realizes, oh, he already has. He just doesn't know it yet. That's a solid point. Like, his fate is already sealed. And neither one of them at that point realized that. How could they? Mm-hmm. But we, uh, you're right. We, as the audience... We have that information now. And so now it's just sort of like, You're and that just it. adds on. It's not just that no, there, it's getting more and more disgusting. It's no, like, no, I, I like that too, because there's, there's that anticipation that comes along with that. Knowing that knowledge and like, how is it going to reveal itself to the characters? We know it's going to keep going until it gets stopped for some reason or another. Yeah. What's that stop going to be? I like that. Once again, it can be done really well or it can be done really bad and with Cronenberg, I don't think you really have to worry about that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I just don't think you, have, you do. 
So yeah, that's a clever way of doing that tastefully. And I mean, we could go through it step by step, but like, yeah, I mean, but the, what what we'd be saying is what like fingernails fall out. Like, dude, I mean, it's it's the traditional like that kind of stuff. I, I don't know if you've ever had a fingernail or you lost a toenail or anything like that. Oh boy! No, this does. It did remind me of a fucking kind of weirdly humorous incident from high school that I didn't have to deal with, but one of my buddies did. He worked in the summers for his father's logging company, and one time he dropped a chainsaw on his foot. It wasn't going. Oh, oof! But Fuck. it went it's still like, heavy. But shit. it still went blade down, so that you know. Oh, so that's them. that's all that weight on an even thinner surface uh, right on his toe. I think he ended up losing that toenail. I think he ended up losing a couple, to be honest. Jesus. But when it grew back, at least the first time, I haven't seen him in years. For all I know, now he has a normal toenail. <laughs> but for those first few years, it wouldn't grow back correctly. It would, like, start to grow back and kind of curl in on itself. Ooh. And, like, it wouldn't ever fully kind of cover his out. toe bed again. So he, in order to make his toes look normal, he started oh. just painting his toenails all the time. And then he yeah. would paint the toe bed. You, you had mentioned to me, yeah, <laughs> but that's, I mean, kudos, kudos. But dang, that must have hurt like a motherfucker. I've lost the fingernail before and that is not fun. I'll, I'll just put it that way. I don't have to get in depth. It sucked. Yeah, I've been I've been lucky enough to oh, to miss that. It doesn't seem like much, but man, your whole world is in the fingertips, boy. I'll tell you what, you feel your fucking heartbeat in your fingertip, and it, yeah, oof, it sucks. See, the part that gets me is when his teeth start going. Oof, yeah, I've had a lot of fucking dental work done. That's yeah, that no one likes that. It's, these are things that we all have a a rational fear of, not irrational, but a rational fear of. Like I said, losing your teeth, losing just your youth in this case mm -hmm. too, you know. So all that deterioration leads to like uh, a certain point. It's like you have to realize like you're becoming something different than your perceived self. I mean, and it's not just the physical. It's the mental deterioration right. it's, it's too. It's the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. He's basically having a different personality gradually take over. Absolutely. I mean, Brundlefly, yeah. not Seth, is essentially slowly taking over it's yeah like a new, he's he's the host for brundlefly mm -hmm. and it's weird too because it's i don't even know how to describe it. i don't know where i was going with that you know, it's no, no, just, no. Let, let, let me maybe on the same train just a little maybe a little different route is with that fly all right now this sounds maybe kind of like i don't know stretching some ideas here but <laughs> that's just a an isolated fly right and if i'm thinking of like all right Animals in general, even though they might follow certain patterns, they're all different distinctly from one another mm -hmm. in some way or another. And I was like, well, he's literally taken on that one characteristic of that one fucking fly. You know, so you could argue or you can make, in my case, like I'll make the argument like, hey, maybe he's just like taken on the characteristics of that particular fly as opposed to the entire fly species. Right, right. That's what I'm getting at because, you know, maybe he interacts with a different fly. And it takes he takes on a different personality trait or different characteristics, things like that. So, you know, brings up those kind of questions. But that's getting way the fuck out there. Well, also, the, the other thing I'm thinking is, like, when he starts 
on the mental side of things, when he starts harder in onto the Brundlefly transformation, is also where we get a lot of... I mean, considering whether he knows it or not, depending on what time in the movie we're talking mm-hmm. about, like, he has a death sentence. Mm-hmm. It's not just black humor, it's gallows humor. Yeah. And you start getting a lot more of that in those sequences, and it's weird because... Here's where I think Goldblum is truly giving some of the best acting of his career is because he's successfully, to me, conveying that he's simultaneously making those jokes because he's going crazy and in order to stop from going crazy. Right. It's a um, like it's a defense a coping, mechanism. Yeah. yeah, and coping as well. You're right. It, it's Yeah, it's all in one in that case. But it's also partially because... He's already starting to go. And he, he probably knows it. He knows. I mean, how can you not? You could feel it. You know, at first it's probably like, ooh, yeah, it is this machine. Like, ooh, it's giving me this interesting invigoration. But then there has to come a point where it's like, oh, maybe it's not the machine. Maybe it's, maybe it's what my instincts are telling me. It's fucked. But I, I think it's clever. Like, once he steps outside of the relationship, if you will, right? Meaning... He goes out, has an arm wrestling contest. That was something as a kid that I do remember now. That like mm. that talking about core memories. I was like, oh yeah, I remember as a kid that one used to freak me out a little bit. Seeing that dude's arm snap like that, because like holy shit. Because there's a scene in uh, one of the Nightmare on Elm Streets <laughs> that deals with like limbs and breaking oh, and okay. snapping and stuff. I'm like, oh, reminds me of that a little bit. But that's another one of those rational fears. No one. Likes the idea of a body part or bone snapping, a break. Especially not fucking coming out of your skin. Dude, no. So you have that. On top of that, he's showing like a dominance in order to win over the female because he has his heightened sex drive, which also is a part of the, the life cycle of passing on your seed. Mm-hmm. You know, and so he's kind of doing these in a very exaggerated, bold manner that's outside of himself. And like you were saying, it, it's part of the metamorphosis, part of the personality trait, part of the process of the brain changing, all of that stuff. It's in, he's encompassing all of that. And it, yeah, he does. He does a really fucking good job of conveying all those things. And that's, I mean, it just continues. So Gina Davis is obviously having her own scare. We already mentioned the nightmare, mm-hmm. the maggot miscarriage. She doesn't know when she was impregnated by Jeff Goldblum, whether it was before or after. Right, exactly. Honestly, Regardless. it's most likely after. Yeah, you're probably right. To be completely honest. Considering, yeah. Yeah, because they are just because of the timeline of shit. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And even then, she doesn't know what that means. No, she's just taking it as like, oh, maybe, yeah. But it's like, no, I I need to go get a fucking abortion. Fuck this noise. I was like, you know, for the time period, too, that's another one of those things. We, Mm -hmm. We talked about the whole satanic panic and the tipper gore with the censorship and all this other stuff. And. There's another hot press issue that, once again, it's relevant as ever. But, yeah, I mean, it's it shows you, like, that's a topic that is very real to a lot of people, you know. And it's it's done tastefully. It's, you know, it's not exploitative or anything like that. It's just, it's showing, in this case, I mean, yeah, I want to say this, too, because this is another thing. I was like, man, this is kind of fucked up way of thinking. But, you know, they weren't afraid to touch that subject. Like, she was afraid that she's carrying a deformed baby. But the way that the fucking dude says it to the doctor. Oh, yeah. I noticed. It's kind of fucked up, right? She's like, yeah. She she slept with a guy who has deformities. And I'm like, it makes it sound like she's just out here fucking dudes with deformities. (laughs) (laughs) 
like she has this weird kink. And the doctor's like, okay, maybe I'll see where you're coming from, homie, but that's such a fucking weird Depending way. Depending to... what it is, you know it don't work that way, and right? It's like, you know she's right there. <laughs> she can hear everything you're saying. But yeah, I mean, that's not the point of the conversation. It's like you can come to that conclusion, but. Well, it also seemed like the doctor was looking at him like, you might want to say the deformity because if he just cut off his hand, you know he can't pass that down in his fucking yeah. jizz, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's a solid point. Yeah, yeah. They didn't get into the specifics. You're like, yeah, this motherfucker's a fly, dude. <laughs> you don't understand. <laughs> so um, she's like, we can't risk it. I'm like, I agree. You can't. No, exactly. So... Uh, I think that's the clever thing of still keeping a little bit of that quote unquote Rosemary's baby's fear of like, you know, like having this demon spawn or in this case, you know, this freaking hybrid human fly gestating in your womb. That has to be frightening. But that's that also gets back to what he's known for is the body horror. And he's doing it in this case from a female perspective mm -hmm. because pregnancy is a real, you know, ordeal women have to go through because their body is transforming. They're carrying another life form inside them. You're going through all these changes. So I think that's another interesting take on it. I mean, we've said many times in the past that we like movies that leave us with questions, depending on what the questions are. Sometimes they're bad questions. <laughs> right. But, but nonetheless, they're questions. <laughs> but I kind of like the change that Cronenberg made, because in the original script treatment, it would have left us with questions. The okay. nightmare wouldn't have come till the end. When she wakes up after having the nightmare, it would have shown that she has already given birth to a normal human kid. But since that feeling is still there, we as the audience could be like, well, it could still turn. Right. It's almost in that sense. It sounds to me like the omen kind of thing. Exactly. That feels a lot more omen-y to me as well. I kind of like, though, that Cronenberg was like, no, let's just get it over with. Mm -hmm. Let me freak out that, like, let me play the Show audience. It. Let me play the audience in the biggest way possible yeah. and give what you only learn afterwards is basically a 10 minute dream sequence in the middle of the movie. She has this fear and you can debate it, but we know the cost of what potentially is inside of her. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she's weighing that. And once again, it's her choice, man. It, it's, she's the one who's having to carry this, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, homie is looking out for her. I give him credit, status, status, whatever. He's just, he's just looking out. I can't blame him. He doesn't really understand. He just think you know, he's like, well, he does. He does. Yeah. He does at that point when they go to see the doctor. He understands at that point. Yeah, by that point, he knows. But that all gets interrupted because Brundle flied overheard. And oh, no, that was pretty dope. I was like, oh, you know, you can hear that shit, right? <laughs> a fly on the wall. <laughs> Well, and that's, that's kind of a funny that's joke. almost like a teenage melodrama misunderstanding where they both got hurt in that conversation and both tried to go to their fucking. She's having my baby. <laughs> she went and just unloaded on the next closest person she could. Mm -hmm. And he went up to the roof to like fucking wallow in his own misery and just <laughs> accidentally happened to be in the right spot to overhear. Yeah. And he's like, whoa, what was, what was that? <laughs> Excuse me? Man, that last changing sequence, though. Wow. Like, that's the that's the thing we needed. Like, whatever. He goes and fucking kidnaps her. Big fucking whoop. Right. Who cares? But, man, I'll tell you what. The thing that made me fucking giggle, dude. I was like, I can't fucking giggling right now, man. Is when uh, 
He made threw up on that fucking donut. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> and then he goes, oh, yeah, that's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I wrote down. And he's like, and then he made a joke that it was disgusting. I was like, that shit had me giggling. That almost ties back to the, like, that you don't get out much. Because, like, he had been stuck inside for four months. No other human contact. Right. And had had, had had to learn... <laughs> Well, I mean, in this case, yeah, I had to learn. Had to turn to teach himself and learn how to eat like that in the first place. And then he's just trying to, what he thinks is basically like just take a bite of a donut in front of her because he's nervous and is like nervous eating. That's what I'm going to say. So in, if you take away the fly element, right, in just a normal setting. He's just nervous eating. That's what I'm going to say. He's anxious. He's nervous. And probably he's, because he's full of anxiety, he's going to toss his biscuits or whatever, you know. But, you know, in the the case of the fly, he has to do it so those enzymes break down the food. Yeah, and it's grody. Like, dude, can you not? <laughs> yeah. I'm a fucking fly guy. What do you, what do you mean, can I not? And he, has, I have he, to. and he just has that realization moment where he's like, oh, yeah, what I'm doing now, it's not normal anymore. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> you might go in the other room while I do this shit. It's going to get fucked up. <laughs> and it does. And then his fucking ear falls off. <laughs> I'm like, Yes. Now it's getting like dead alive. It's getting mm-hmm. a little absurd. And I like that. It doesn't go too far, but it's like, no, you, yeah, this dude's fucking falling apart right in front of your eyes. Well, once again, I already said I fucking hate it, and I do because, like, my teeth hurt just talking about it again. Wow. But the way those front teeth come out is also just great fucking dark comedy. It and really it, is. His he just looks, looks down at it. Like, his yeah. fucking physical acting He's through like, yeah, that makeup looking at it being like, this is what we're doing now, I guess. Yeah, this is me in the scene. Mm-hmm. I'm going for it. I did see them do the sequence with the hand melt with Stathis mm. when he vomits on it and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And they were trying to do, you know, you, you can see it in the final, you know, take, cut, and all that stuff where they composited, you know, all that stuff. But they were trying to do it in camera with a practical effect, like using a wax hand. Oh, okay. And they were, you know, trying to melt it and go through the whole sequence. But for whatever reason, it I don't think Just it tested. Yeah, I didn't test well, so they had to composite it. But still, you get the idea of what's happening. Since we're in this whole sequence, I didn't watch the deleted endings, I didn't but I did it. watch like the him eating the foot, and I watched the baboon cat. Yeah, I didn't watch that. I didn't. I didn't watch any of the, the baboon scenes. cat. Isn't as good as it sounds like. Really? Yeah. Said that he beats it with a pipe, right? After he comes yeah, out. So the coolest part of the baboon cat sequence is first off, there's almost no talking. It's like six whole minutes straight uh, of just him interacting or just him interacting and like doing this thing. He fuses the baboon in the cat and like it attacks him. He throws it off. He goes and he beats it to death with the fucking pipe. In there. The baboon cat is nothing special compared to the rest of the effects in gotcha. the movie. And then he goes once again. He goes up to the rooftop because that's like his sad place. Okay, makes sense. He's and he goes up there and he's all pissed off that his experiment didn't yeah. work, or at least not the way he was hoping it would work. And he's like, no, 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 which is like I think the only thing he actually says during that sequence. Oh, okay. And he accidentally slips and almost falls to his death. And he's like trying to grab the outside of the building, but he's not quite grasping on the same way that he was indoors mm. and he's slowly like sliding down and it slows him just enough that he doesn't die when he hits. And when he hits, he has like this weird fucking pain in his side and something's moving. And this new fucking insect leg mm. bursts out of like, oh shit, 
like kind of like his rib cage. Oh damn! And this is the part that is kind of good, is because then he's like kind of freaked out by it, and he grabs it, and he fucking rips it most of the way off, and once it's like two thirds the way off, he leans down and bites through the rest. Oh damn! So he's like self mutilation, cannibalism. Mm-hmm. Wow. Which body horror? Him eating Stathis's foot. Eh. Meh. Okay. It's it sounds more interesting than it is. So it's right before she rips off his jaw, right? Okay. Well, you already see at that point that like his sh- it kind of gives away the fact how far gone he is because after he spits up the acid on it and he's just holding it there and it's this weird like he's like center framed and it's just uh, like him holding like the shoe with just like goop in it. On. Yeah. And then he has, like, the the fly proboscis come down, and that's what's eating it. And it doesn't look that interesting. It's just, like, this weird white tube coming out of his mouth. Gotcha. They were probably toying around with some concepts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, yeah. That's okay. The thing, though, with the baboon cat sequence is they used some of the shots of him from that sequence, just, like, the close-ups on him, in the trailer for the movie. Oh, that's interesting. You never see him, if you don't see that scene, you never see him look like that in the entire movie. Because wow. it's actually an in-between sequence gotcha. when he still has his hair, but when the rest of him has started to go more brundle, like end brundle fly. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's what you're saying. And they just, they took probably, you know, at that point, whatever footage they get their hands on, chopped it up. Because it takes place at the same time period as the nightmare sequence. Okay. So it's in between those two looks. Gotcha. Is his look. But that's what they used in the trailer. That's funny, man. They do what they want. (laughs) You know. Here's another thing. Oh, wait. The head. His his final Brundlefly change. God damn. That's Which I'm not going to. I see a lot of people... The way they worded online is like, and then he finally reveals his true form of the, you know, the true Brundlefly. I'm like, that's not the true Brundlefly. He's going to continue metamorphosizing even further. It's not the end. There's nothing about this movie that suggests that this is the end. It's just that he's gotten far enough that he can't be in his skin anymore. Right, right, right. He's now at that stage where, yeah, he's at this stage of the insect life, the fly life. Honestly, like, insects that molt or come out of cocoons or whatever, they usually have that like little bit of time period where they're still pretty squishy and then shit hardens up. Every bit of him in this looks pretty squishy when it's done. Yeah, exactly. If he would have lived past this sequence, do you think he would have hardened up into more of a traditional like fly a relic? look? Yeah. <laughs> like that, uh, maybe. Probably. Yeah, taking on the wings and stuff. Yeah, what or even not this? the wings, but just, but just like the general. black, yeah, the, like, yeah, it's like a little bit more of an metallic. exoskeleton, and yeah, that would have been fucking dope. But you know, alas, it's okay. They mm-hmm. don't have to do that. It's just for us to play with. That would have been fucking sweet. But that's one of those weird nitpicky things. I when I was looking at people describe the end of this movie, they came like it's in his final stuff. form, and it's like his final form that we see. Yeah, it's like. This isn't Dragon Ball Z. Chill out with that. <laughs> no, I agree with you there. It's just, yeah, it's just one of the various stages of his the life cycle. But that head coming apart? Oh, man, that was Has good. that ever been matched by anything? In, like, um, Maybe the ball uh, ripping from Wolf Cop. Yeah. <laughs> transformation. <laughs> but no, 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 no. I mean, all jokes aside, not, no, not. Well, 
just the amount of detail. Like you can watch his eyes liquefy and fall. I know. I'm trying to think. It's like, well, I'm trying to. No, I mean, not not right off the top of my head. I'm gonna have to put that up there with some of the tops. I'm just like, whoa, what the fuck? Just the decaying and yeah, that was. It's so good. The legs bursting out of his Dude, legs. Dude, it's so good. It's the so feet good. fucking popping apart. I can see why Chris Wallace, you know, won an award for this. I think Academy, right? Yeah. I'm mistaken, so. Hello. <laughs> I mean, this is gnarly stuff, man. And it's well done, and it just makes you feel a certain way. Whether you like that kind of stuff or not, it's going to make you feel a certain way. I'm not complaining, dude. That might have been where I tapped out. Once again, I'm not positive. So close, if that were the case. Right. You were right there, Tyler. I know. <laughs> I um, could have seen the finish line. <laughs> but I, I, I get it, because it's like, man, what the fuck? <laughs> There's a part of me that feels like, now, now that I can handle this shit, I want to see the version of this ending where he's successful mm. and merges with Veronica and the baby. That would have been crazy. Which also, by the way, maybe is his best shot of regaining humanity at yeah. this point. No, I mean... I, I, exactly. Like, it's still a fucked up thing to do, but... But he's merging more of the human element. He's merging two more humans... Right. ...to dilute the fly. That's what I'm getting at. It's like, it's... It and more one of those essence. humans already has his DNA. Solid point. And you could say it's kind of like vampiric in a way, too. Mm-hmm. But I was also going to say, in the body horror aspect, it reminds me a little bit of, like, Color Out of Space, when the mom yes. fuses with the babe, or the kid, and mm-hmm. the fucking, what was it, the lambs or whatever they were they had? Yeah. That was that's crazy. What, that's what I was thinking, too. Has a little bit, I'm going to say, that, that's a, a whole different degree to it. But, no, it's, yeah, I agree. There, there could have been a way for him to possibly save some of his humanity, if he wanted to. I feel like, in a way, that that's how the Japanese remake of this ends. It's pretty dope. This is, that's how the Shinya Tsukamoto version of this ends. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Where it cuts to a music video, and it's like, yeah, this is beautiful. <laughs> but the whole family's fused. Right, right, in some kind of phallic symbol. <laughs> the baby's just like a fly dick quado coming out of oh them. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> When it comes to Japanese, you can definitely use your imagination, and you're probably somewhere in the ballpark of what they're going for. Dude, this movie's a fucking masterpiece. I really, really, I mean, and this is not just to, you know, like, fluff up Cronenberg, man, but just thinking about, yeah, the, the films that we have done, like Scanners, we've done this, Nightbreed that he's in, um, Jason X, and whether he's acting, whether he's directing, he does a phenomenal job, man. In this film, yeah, I can see why it's so heralded why it made Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum like household names. Their careers, of course, went further, better works, things like that. But once again, it's a Canadian horror film. It really showcased what you can do on a thoughtful budget as well. Mm -hmm. Like, they didn't spend a lot of money on sets and cast and all this other stuff. Like, they worked within the confines of what they had, and they did a fantastic job. The practical effects is phenomenal. 1986, dude, you're pulling shit off like this. Um, right. That's a lesson for people who are, you know, thinking, like, you have to do everything digital. I'm not saying there's a lot, but practical is a good way to go. And Mel Brooks even is a huge champion of that, hence why he was all on board with Chris Wallace's team. Hence everybody else was, too. So, huh. Yeah, what can you say about this film, man, that we haven't already said a million times? The trivia on it is really cool. Like I said, how everything came to be, it's pretty dope, man. 
So with inflation, the budget for this would have been a hair over forty million. What would be the profit, the gross on it, the, the inflation rate? With inflation, yeah, because that that would give you kind of a good comparison too. Well, first of all, I I wanted I to mean, bring that, that shows I wanted to like bring that up. Forty million like, is a big budget. Forty millions by today's standards. Forty million is I mean, like standard. well, I mean, it's not a big budget. No, I mean, but it's not little. No, it's definitely not little. I it's mean, not it's, like a Blumhouse. No, 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 no. That's still independent. In, I mean, this is still independent. But Forty, we're talking more like a lower Lionsgate or something. Mm, yeah, major studio. But I mean, Brooks yeah. films. But like we associate wow. those films with a certain look and a certain feel. Yeah, that's a good you point. You can make Forty Million look like this. Is the point I was trying to make? Like, yes, you can. You don't need a hundred million dollar budget. And yeah, like all this crazy, I don't know, like a gala, like you're holding this festival for a film. It's like, you don't have to do that. Yeah, so adjusting for inflation, this movie was had a $40 million budget. But yeah, now I'm curious. You're right. Like, let's see what it brought in box office. Yeah, yeah, because it's like that will, I'm, I'm kind of curious. That's on a 10, so four. Just say four, four times that, like 240, 250 million. Fucking hell, if that's the case. 163 million. Still, that's four times its budget. Even if you add in like advertising and things like that, you still triple, say triple its budget. It's crazy. Closer to 164 million. Wow. The point I'm making too is it was a clever way for Canada, I won't say to take advantage of, but I mean, yeah, take advantage of their tax code systems, give out tax credits in the form of, you know, film. And we've talked about Americans going up there in Toronto and Vancouver and mm -hmm. other various places. And here's something, too, that Mark Irwin, the DP, had made note of. He said, during this time period in Canadian filmmaking, you had a distinct difference in terms of how cinematographers and directors working in Quebec, you know, Montreal specifically, but in Quebec, the province, mm -hmm. compared to the rest of, of Canada's provinces, is he said that they were more experimental and just willing to take more risks in Quebec. He said they were more artful and things like that, whereas they're a little bit more standard than the rest of Canada. And he said with David Cronenberg, he was willing and capable of making these concessions. Like he was, he could push the envelope to make it not feel kind of systematic, like mm -hmm. television and all that shit. He's like, no, this guy had a certain vision that paralleled what was going on on the east, you know, and when we could do it in Toronto. And he said, she so happened people in Ottawa, and he said it was like filmmakers, independent filmmakers were like pushing, you know, Ottawa to do this as far as giving out these tax credits. And it worked in their favor. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about Scanners. The Fly is another example of that. Even though it's a U.S. production, it's Canadian film. Yeah. Shot in Toronto. So, uh, yeah, it's really cool, man. It's, a, it's something I think they're probably pretty proud of, I would imagine. I hope so. So now, I'm excited for next week. Dude, there's somebody, two people, actually, one person you know, another person I know, but we have one person in common, one person not. So my point being is they both want to hear our takes on it, and I'm excited about it. So next week will be Titan. That's going to be wild. And we haven't talked about this director since Raw, and that was... That when wasn't we even a our, proper episode. No, we just w happened to see the film at the Roxy here in town, and we did a, like a little, you know, mini episode, and that was that. But it's going to be a fun way to 
revisit her and her works. Yeah. I agree. Super looking forward to that. Dude, yes. That's going to be another one that I, I think will really put the guts and bolts back in guts and bolts. Man, this has been very appropriate for that segment, this whole run. Mm-hmm. But for this week, I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fried Squirms. Out. Hi, everybody. Tyler here. If you like the podcast, please hit subscribe however you're listening to us right now. Also, if you could rate and review us however you're listening to us, or preferably over on Apple Podcasts, that'd be super cool as the entire world is ran on algorithms and we want to be all up in them. Uh, We highly appreciate it whenever you tell all your friends about us. If you have any suggestions, comments, questions, want us to put eyes on your current independent horror project, you can always contact us, squirmcast at gmail.com, or you can contact us through our website, www.friedsquirms.com. Scroll through our entire back catalog there, or click the links up at the top as we are part of the Earverm Podcast Network, uh, and would love it if you went and checked out some of our sister shows. Uh, The easiest way to keep track of things across the entire network is to go over to that website. That's earverm.com, E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M.com. You can search for us across all the social medias. If you type in Fried Squirms, we should be what pops up. Not going to give you all those ats. So, with all of that in mind, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, peace.